Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The FT. Welcome to World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. This week, we concentrate on Russia as President Putin gets settled back into the Kremlin. He's just paid a state visit to Beijing, and together Russia and China made it clear that they'll oppose any outside intervention in Syria. So is this a new access of authoritarianism between Beijing and Moscow? And what vision does President Putin have for the future of Russian politics and government? Joining me on the line from Moscow is Charles Clover, our Moscow bureau chief, and here in the studio is Neil Buckley, a former FT correspondent in Moscow, now our East Europe editor. Charles, Russia and China... Is there a sense that they have increasingly a common approach to big global problems like Syria and, and that they're linked by a suspicion of the, the U.S.? Um, I think certainly they, they're, they're linked by a suspicion of, of the U.S. Um, they, they see uh, the U.S. And, and NATO as, as an aggressive, expansionist, political, military bloc and not as a zone of freedom and liberty and human rights as we tend to... Uh, like to portray ourselves, and they see um, the U.S. as increasingly uh, sort of ideological in its approach to foreign relations, and they see themselves as uh, wholly objective in their approach <laughs> to uh, foreign relations. Increasingly, Russia and China do tend to uh, be very critical of U.S. and NATO, especially in in the Middle East and in uh, and particularly in in Syria. And ha- has um, that tendency in Russian thinking been very obviously accentuated by the return of Vladimir Putin? Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, uh, Russia is very much uh, the, the Russian sort of political culture is very much uh, one uh, to, to take signals from from the top. And so, when Medvedev was president, even if he wasn't uh, completely in power, uh, there were more sort of uh, liberal pro-Western signals emanating from the Kremlin. And so, we tended to see the political culture kind of take that cue. Um, now that Putin is, is back in the Kremlin and firmly in the driver's seat as president, we're starting to see a chill. Uh, and that certainly, I think, just uh, reflects Putin's own personality and his own approach to, to foreign relations. Putin is, is very much a critic of the West. He has, has sees Russia as having been treated very badly by the U.S. and by the West in the first part of his uh, presidency back in the early part of the last decade. And so he doesn't trust the West. Um, he tends to see conspiracies, and he sees, for instance, the protests that erupted in Russia over the winter. He, he sees these, at least according to his public statements, as uh, inspired by, you know, unnamed foreign enemies, by which he obviously means uh, Washington and London hmm. and uh, Western Europe. Neil, just on the China aspect of things. Obviously, the, the the prospect of Russia and China getting together, if I can use that phrase, has always been one that slightly alarmed the West. Um, is is it for real, though? I mean, are, or are there real limits to how far they can align their interests? I think there are definite limits to how far they can align their interests, and I, I wouldn't really see 
this Russia-China uh, attempt at building closer relations is anything particularly new. Putin has been making visits to China uh, over the years, uh, with, usually with great fanfare. Um, he made a particularly big one in 2006 uh, amid uh, great fanfare um, and agreed a framework for starting to deliver Russian gas, natural gas, to China. Six years later, there's no agreement on the price for that. Nothing has started. Uh, they're not even starting to build the pipelines. So uh, we're, we're a little further on on that than we were in 2006. And there seems to be no movement on that in the most recent meeting. I think Russia would like to move closer to China, but is also very suspicious of China at the same time. China, on the other hand, my impression is that they see Russia as an important raw materials provider, as a market for their goods, but otherwise um, don't see a great deal of potential for a, for a real strategic partnership. They, mm. they don't view Russia as being actually a terribly important player these days. It's an, it's an amazing historic reversal, isn't it? When one thinks back to the communist period when you know, Moscow was the number one power and in a sense China was in its shadow. And now you have Putin going to to, uh, to Beijing. And as you say, being, you know, the Chinese not really taking Russia that seriously as, as a major power anymore. Exactly. That, for the first time for a very, for a very yeah. long time, yeah. Russia looks at, at China and sees a power that is more important than it is uh, and a more dynamic and fast-growing economy than uh, than it is. And are they worried in any real way about Siberia? I keep hearing this discussion that, you know, on the one hand, you've got vast energy resources in Siberia, very few people, Russians, living there relatively for the space. China, 1.2 billion people on the other side of the border. Will they somehow gain control of Siberia in the long run? Is that something re the Russians really worry about? You do hear about this, and particularly actually if you go into Siberia, um, it's something you hear a lot. Uh, there is a bit of a complex about the fact that um, Russia only has a fairly small portion of its population, a few tens of millions, I think it's about 30 million people in, in, uh, in Siberia, and there is depopulation of the Siberian part of Russia. And so they have a complex that at some point China could just march into that whole area because they need the resources. I don't think that's a very realistic threat at this point, but it's certainly something that's there in the in the Russian mentality. And, and even actually Russia's opposition talk about um, China being the real threat to Russia and not the West. Charles, I guess the only way to fend off that uh, sense of growing weakness is to revive the Russian economy, which has been a perennial theme. Now, as, as I understand it, there's a debate between those who say, well, you know, Russia really has to liberalise, has to develop other forms of economic activity beyond energy and gas, and perhaps a more conservative crowd who say, well, actually, we're not doing that badly, we're growing quite fast, we have huge foreign reserves. Which side of that argument do you think uh, Putin will come down on? Um, it's very difficult. I mean, Putin is is himself uh, actually quite liberal, though his image is is one of, uh, is is a very conservative. I mean, he's he's a, sort of a mix of 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 the two. Um, and Putin's role seems to be to sit back and watch them go at it, and um, and and try and be on the winning side, or or sort of make sure that um, there's a sort of a rough balance between the the two. <laughs> I think in the new cabinet, it does seem like the market friendly anti-statist wing has come out on top, if only because the chief statist anti-privatization ideologue, uh, Igor Sechin, who is a deputy prime minister in charge of the energy complex, 
has not gotten a job in the new cabinet, and he's also not uh, gotten a job in the Kremlin. So he certainly remains a powerful figure behind the scenes. But it seems like the signal that the Kremlin is trying to send is that the champions of the private sector-led growth uh, are in the ascendancy. And so the people who are um, heading up economic policy in the cabinet are very much sort of market-friendly. Putin's actual ideology is anyone's to guess at, I think. One argument that the liberalizers have always made is that, and Medvedev made a great deal, is that you need to improve the rule of law in in, in Russia. Um, And yet it seems in this crackdown, at least on the democracy movement, if one can call it that, Putin is moving in the other direction. I gather his spokesman had some fairly... Uh, astonishing things to say about how to treat the opposition. Yeah, we've been talking about economic policy, and on political matters, Putin is very much more conservative. I mean, he sees he seems to be an advocate of some sort of authoritarian modernization of, of the Russian economy. You know, whereas Medvedev, uh, the former president, seems to have contemplated assuaging protests and allowing them to have their say. Putin seems to be very much in the other direction, and, and he's cracking down now on protests. They've passed a law jacking up fines for illegal protests, and Putin has made some sort of eccentric decisions in the last month since his inauguration. Uh, After a melee uh, between protesters and riot police um, at the beginning of last month, in which a a few riot police uh, were hurt, Putin's spokesman was quoted as saying that he wanted to see the livers of protesters who had hurt uh, the riot policemen, uh, quote, smeared on the pavement, unquote, which is a bizarre uh, thing to say publicly. And it was even more bizarre in the fact that, that it was quoted by somebody else. Uh, and then the, the Kremlin, after a day of conferring about this, decided to confirm the quote. Um, so it's something that they thought about, and they thought, hmm, yes, we'd like to say this in public, and we'd like it to be attributed to us. Uh, it was a strange thing to say. Putin has also canceled his attendance at the G8 summit in the U.S., as well as a, as a meeting with uh, U.S. President Barack Obama at the last minute, which was a slightly odd thing to do. Even if they didn't intend to send a signal, it, it certainly was taken as a, as a snub. Another slightly eccentric thing that Putin did was that he appointed the foreman of a of a factory that makes tanks to be essentially the governor general of the entire Urals region in the center of Russia. And this is somebody whose only claim to fame is that he had promised on public television during a talk show with Putin that he and his um, factory boys would come to Moscow and beat up protesters if the uh, Moscow police weren't capable of taking care of this. Right. Well, the, the drift of that, I can see, was not particularly congenial to, to liberals. So, Neil, I mean, aside from what the internal opposition think of all this, what are Russia's neighbours like to the West in, in the area you mostly write about now in Eastern Europe? What are they thinking about this, the Baltic states and the Poles? Are they scared? Uh, I'm not sure that they're scared, but they're certainly um, uh, preoccupied and curious about what uh, Putin is up to. I was in Poland last week and uh, got a lot of questions from Poles about uh, what Putin was up to, what what his agenda was. But, of course, there, there's a kind of divide. The old Soviet empire, as it were, the Western part of that is very much inside the European Union and inside NATO now. So they're concerned about Russia. They're interested in Russia, but they feel that they are part of the kind of Western uh, sphere now. Uh, if, if we look at the eastern part and the, the former Soviet republics, 
Putin has an initiative, uh, what he's calling the Eurasian Union, to create a common economic space initially between Russia, Belarus and Kazakhstan, where there's already a customs union, but potentially including other former Soviet republics as well. And I think this is very important. I think this is genuinely important to Putin. And if you look at his first foreign uh, visits as well as China, he actually went to Belarus first. Uh, He's been to Kazakhstan. And this is clearly something that is a priority for his new term to establish a new kind of um, post-Soviet integration in the former Soviet space. Okay, a final question then for for, for you, Charles. Um, obviously, this is a snapshot in time of what it looks like just after Putin's come into the Kremlin. But as you may recall, I was in, in Moscow in, in January. And at that point, the demonstrations were on. There were a lot of people saying, well, Putin will inverted commas, win the election. He'll, he'll make it back to the Kremlin. But the mood in Russia's changed. He's not going to last out the, the whole five-year term. What's your feeling on that now? Have things settled down? And are we in for a long period of Putinism? Um, things have definitely settled down since January. But I think the mood has definitely changed. It's not entirely clear whether that has yet been digested by Putin and his team. But I've spoken to several very highly placed people in even in Putin's United Russia Party, and um, very few people in the upper reaches of Russia's political elite actually think that Putin will run for a fourth term in 2018. If that's the case, then it comes down to, um, well, what, how, how do they decide to handle the succession? Um, and it, it may well be that they decide to do essentially what Boris Yeltsin did in 1999, which is hand over to a successor before the end of the term who would run as an incumbent in the Okay, thank you very much, Charles. And that's it for this week. My thanks to Charles Clover in Moscow, to Neil Buckley here in the studio, and to Martin Starber, who produced this programme. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.